I want to start our time off this morning by reading a little bit from Matthew, which is the first book of your New Testament, about the birth of Jesus. And then we're going to go back into our story about David and Goliath, which is the second week of the same story. So last week we started David and Goliath. This week we're going to continue it. Thought I would end it, but you know me. So next week we're going to end the story of David and Goliath. Let me read from Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, that means engaged, but like really engaged. Different story. When his mother, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, you, save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had already spoken to the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful again that we get to come together as your people to worship you, to learn about you, uh, to remember that you are God and you alone are God. We thank you that you have set us aside as your church, those who are called out, those who have made righteous. Um, we thank you that you have called us to send this message to the nations, um, to our homes, to our communities, to our workplaces, and to the ends of the earth. We're thankful for this time of the year where on the church calendar, we set aside time to specifically remember how you entered into our world, how you came into the mess, how you did not stand far away and make us earn our right to be with you, but how you came to us, providing a way for us out of our sin, out of our death, and into your life. Father, we're so thankful for salvation. Each Sunday is a reminder that salvation is a gift. It's nothing we earn. It's nothing that, that we can purchase, but we receive it as a gift, and we make it ours because of what you've done on the cross. We thank you that sinners like us can find forgiveness and repentance, or we are the worst. And we're just so thankful that we have been made righteous and made pure and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we walk in freedom, no longer condemned of our past, no longer condemned for the sins of our future, but we are made blameless before you. And for that, we thank you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began our study, <coughs> our sermon on the book of Goliath. Not the book. That was wrong. Second service. You get my leftovers. Just joking. Uh, the story of Goliath, David and Goliath. And most people, whether you have church experience or not, have heard of this story or the people of David and Goliath. Um, you've either heard about it you know about it, you've read about it, and if you're a Christian, if you're a churchgoer, you maybe know quite a bit about it. Um, David and Goliath is one of those really famous stories in the Bible, and we're learning about it today because of how it connects us to the events of Christmas. And that's really important. So what I just read in the book of Matthew isn't, you know, it's not like people didn't expect that to happen. They should have expected it. They've been told about it by God over and over and over and over again. And David and Goliath is just one of those those signs that keep us on the right path. It's one of the signs for God's people that says, God is still working, God is still saving, he's going to provide a way. That's really the story of David and Goliath. In fact, all of your Bible is like that. 
your entire Bible is all about one thing, really about one person, salvation through Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is about one thing. So the Bible is 66 books. This is kind of a, a recap from last week, but I think it needs to be said again. You have 66 books in your Bible called the Holy Bible. Um, some are long, some are short, some are really short, like 14 verses long. And there's some of the Old Testament, there's some of the New Testament. But all of this Bible, there are 66 different unique books written over a time of about 1,600 to 2,000 years. So they're all written within that span of time. And they're written by 40 different authors. 40 different authors authors for 66 books. Yet all of them explain the exact same thing. Salvation through Jesus Christ. So if you think about it in terms of how your Bible is laid out, it's not chronological, right? They're, they're, the books are grouped like like-minded books. So the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, which is all the, the really old ancient stuff that we kind of understand. It's kind of interesting. There's some stuff in there we don't like. There's some stuff in there that seems very strange as it's in the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament is predicting the coming of Jesus Christ. It's getting us prepared for Christmas. That's what the Old Testament does. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's called the New Testament. Those are the first four books of your New Testament. Those just teach us who Jesus is. So they... They record his movements, his teaching, his preaching. They record who followed him and all the miracles that he did, the cross and the grave and the resurrection and all of that. Those reveal who Jesus is. And then you have another book in the New, in the New Testament called the book of Acts. It's unique within itself, but it's another book of how the early church got started, the Acts of the Apostles. So it's really about the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Acts is about. The Spirit of God and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And then you get to some New Testament letters they're called. Because they're not really books, they're letters written to churches. So we just went through one called Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, which was an ancient city. Then there's one called Galatians. That just means it's written to the Galatian people, the letter to the church in Galatia, an ancient city, or Rome, or Philippi. Those are all just towns, local churches. So if God wrote us a, a letter, I mean, he, he has, it's a big one. We're not going to get anything new. But if he did, uh, it'd be, you know, the, the, the Portageans or the... Kalamazooians or whatever we'd call, uh, that would be God's communication to us. So that's all the New Testament. And those letters explain who Jesus is and how what he has done is supposed to affect your life, right? It explains how this works itself out, this whole Bible salvation thing. And then at the end of the New Testament, you have a book called Revelation, which is often weird. A lot of people argue about it, and there's a lot of imagery, and nobody wants to talk about it because if they do, everybody says they're wrong. That's at the end of your Bible, and that predicts the return of Jesus. So that's your entire Bible. And I only share that because I want you to know that every single one of those books talks about salvation through Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. So all the Bible is about Jesus, and more specifically, all the Bible is about how God is saving people through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God which is what we celebrate on Christmas, is that when that son came into the earth, when Jesus was born, like I just read. That's what the Christmas season is all about. So now, why the story of David and Goliath? Because each and every Christmas, we can go back to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke and talk about the birth of Jesus, which we actually will do next week. We can do that, and we could preach on that at Christmas every year until we die, and there'd be plenty to talk about. Now, there's no shortage of things to, to learn in the Bible. But I want to do as a, what I wanted to do as a church is take us through the Bible, even those places where it doesn't seem like it connects with us today, like it's really old, and how that gets us ready for Christ. I mean, if I just said all of the Bible is about Christ, then I can show you. So that, that's, that's what I want you to do. I want you to realize no matter where you turn in your Bible, there's a story, a character, a command, and it's all pointing to the exact same thing. 
God is going to make a way. He's going to send someone, and that someone is going to be Jesus, and he's going to be the Savior. That's what your entire Bible is about. So when you open your Bible, you really need to know. It's one coherent, logical communication to us. And David and Goliath, for all that we know about it, there's so many connections to Jesus Christ. There's so many connections in who Jesus would be and what he would do for his people to this story. So I thought, what the heck? Let's go for it and talk about David and Goliath at Christmas. Now, that's the reason why. And let me give you just a bit of a recap of what we did last week. We didn't get to the battle yet. You haven't missed the good part. We got to the leading up of who David is and why he's called to go fight this Goliath from Gath, this Goliath, this Philistine, this really wicked warrior. Why David? What's going on there? So um, this story is found in the book of 1 Samuel. In your Old Testament, there's a 1 Samuel, there's a 2 Samuel. And this, those entire two books is basically, um, they're all about how God is still going to make a way. Even though people screw it up, they do the wrong thing, they say the wrong thing, they sin against God, he's still doing it, he's still working, his plan is going to happen, which is really, really good for us. And by the way, you cannot stop God's plan from working itself out. You just can't. Even in your sinfulness, even in the things that you do wrong, even when you miss the mark, you need to know that God is way more powerful than your sin, and he's still moving, and he's still working. That should really make us very excited. Because then it doesn't depend on us, does it? Sometimes we can say, well, if I don't do that, then God's going to stop. Well, God is God, and he's going to do what he wants, and he is the creator, and he is the sustainer, and he's in control of all things. So we just worship at his feet, and we focus on that. And that's what the first and second Samuel books are about. Because when these books, um, they're written to show us a time in, uh, in, in the ancient of days, in the ancient days of Israel, where it was really, really wicked. There's another book of the Bible called Ruth. It's a four-chapter story about this amazing family. We went through it a couple years ago. We'll do it again because we only did it in four weeks and we need to take a lot longer. But in that book, it says this story came about when everyone in the land did what was right in his or her own eyes. I mean, that's the culture that Ruth lived in, where there's, uh, there's no one leading. There's no one, pointing, there's no one pointing people back to God. It's just mass chaos everywhere. Think of it like in our own town, where everyone would, did what they thought was right, and there was no one to protect the people. Now, there was no first responders. There was no public safety officers. Just officers. There were just people doing whatever they wanted. That's also the context of First and Second Samuel. I mean, this is in the time where God's people were were just fractured and people just doing what they wanted. So first and second Samuel is about how God is still going to work through that mess, all right? Now, the book is about, it begins to be about a guy named Samuel. Samuel's a prophet. And that just means he speaks for God and he does what God wants him to do. So Samuel's chosen by God to be a prophet. That was kind of a unique process. We're not gonna go there. And then he was given a task to give Israel their first king, to appoint this king. Now, what you need to know is that before Samuel even does this, there is no king in Israel. God's nation, God's people, because they were ruled by judges. They were ruled by prophets. So you have this nation of people in the ancient times that were ruled and governed literally by a prophet showing up and saying, remember the law that was given to Moses? We know what God expects of us. We know what we're supposed to do. Remember that law. Go back to it. You know, go back to God. Do what he says. And then they'd get out of line again, and they'd freak out, and something bad would happen, and they'd say, God, save us. And okay, so a prophet would come again, and that's like pretty much your Old Testament over and over again. And then a prophet would come again and say, oh, God's going to save you, and here's how he's going to do it. That's what a prophet was told to do. So there was no king. Now, other nations had kings. I mean, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we actually forget that there's other people that existed around this time. So 
the people of the Bible were not the only people alive on the earth. You had all these other nations that surrounded them, and they had kings. So Israel finally goes, hey, Samuel, listen, I get it. We've been ruled by a prophet. We've been ruled by a judge. We want, to be a, we want a king. And we want a king because we want to be like the other nations. Now, Samuel goes, listen, you don't want a king. Let me tell you what kings do. They take your, their money. It's called taxes. <clears throat> Amen. And they take your, their money. They take all your, your sons. They'll put them in the army. You'll never see them again. They'll take your daughters and they'll work in the kingdom. They're just going to take everything. They're going to own your land. They're going to rule over you like a human, sinful, somewhat imperfect person is going to rule. You don't want a king. You want a prophet, you want a judge, you want to hear directly from God. And they say, yeah, thanks, but no, we want a king. So Samuel is told to go get a king. All right, Samuel gets a king. This is all last week. I'm trying to get us there quickly. Samuel goes and gets a king, and he finds a guy named Saul. Now, God appoints him. Samuel just says, hey, God said you're a king, right? That's a long story. That's the short of it. Guess what? You're a king now. And the Bible says that Saul was a, a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. You know, so they picked him out of a crowd. He's strong. He's masculine. He can wield a sword. He can fight. He can lead God's people into battle, and that's what they wanted. You got this little teeny nation. Got a lot of surrounding enemies because everybody wants to conquer everybody else. That's just the way of the world. That's the way of sin. It's never going away. We even see that today, don't we? I mean, everybody wants what other people have. That's just how it works. And so you have these nations that want to conquer Israel, and they go, well, we have Saul now. We're good, right? We're good. Well, Saul's not bad. He's a good king. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, Israel has a lot of kings. A lot of them are pretty wicked. Saul's not that bad of a guy. But he fails. Well, why does he fail? Well, because he's imperfect. He's just like you and me. We've missed the mark. Saul missed the mark. He actually didn't follow the instructions of God this one time. And then, you know, played it out like he did. You know how you, like, go before God and go, I swear I didn't do that for that reason. You know, I know you and your prayers. Because so, I did the same thing. But God said, no, Saul, you really did fail. You're out. You're done. All right, I'm done. And then he gets pretty sad. And then God says, Samuel, Saul's out. I need you to go find a new king. And I want you to go to this guy's house named Jesse. And Jesse's going to have a bunch of sons. And I want you to line them up. And I'm going to tell you which one is supposed to be the king. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house. Hey, Jesse, knock, knock. I'm a prophet. I'm from God. Guess what? One of your kids is going to be king. Imagine getting that, you know, ringing that on your doorbell. You're like, okay. So he lines up all seven sons. And he says, no. No? I mean, the first or the three we'll see actually fought in the army. They'd probably be a good fit. Good warrior, strong, tall, good leader. Nope, nope, nope. Does that seven times. And Samuel says, you got another kid somewhere? I mean, I, I think you got another kid. Is he around? What does Jesse say? He's out in the field. He's out in the field. He's keeping the sheep. His name is David. And Samuel says, we're not even sitting down until you go and get him. We're standing right here. You go and get him right now. They go and get David. And Samuel says, just like he said to Saul, hey, check it out. You're king now. Takes some oil, puts it in a horn, dumps it over his hair. That's a different conversation. It's a weird thing. We don't do that anymore. But not really weird, just different. And, you know, you don't invite people into church by dumping oil over their head. So David is now anointed, that is called. It's an anointing. It's a symbol to say God's peace is upon you. God has chosen you. You are king. Package that up. Put it over here. David's king. Saul's out. David's in. At the exact same time, Israel's actually involved in a battle with an enemy. They're called the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are like the, the annoying neighborhood kid that you fought with your entire childhood, but was still always around. That's the Philistines. They're just always fighting with Israel. They're always there. There's always some sort of tension. They never go away. So they're fighting with Philistines again. Some of David's brothers are at the battle, but David's going in between tending the sheep for his dad and hanging out with Saul, the old king. 
who doesn't know that David's the new king? Because Samuel never said, hey, check it out. You know that teenager hanging out with you? He's the new king. That, that never gets communicated. It's this weird transition that we don't quite understand why it's there. So you have Saul acting as king in the battle. Well, he's really hiding. We'll get to that in a minute. But you have also David kind of around the battle, but also at home. And he's the new king. It's a very weird transition. And so if it were like a movie, you know, the beginning of the movie started with showing us about Saul's rise and fall. Rise to the throne, fall from the throne. And then we see David. Well, we need a new king, all right? David enters the picture. There he is. And then we pan out to this battle, specifically this battle between the Philistines and Israel, and that's where we meet the giant. Now, we met him last week. I'm going to reread it again so we can all be on the same page. All right, so that's where we're at today. And let me read for you 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, open them up. If you haven't turned on your Bible, turn it on. I think Brent will have the screens behind me, and I had the wrong translation in the 9 a.m., so you get the right one. It'll just look different. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's 11 verses. Now, I'm talking fast because I'm trying to get us there. I promise I'll slow down in a minute. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekiah and Ephes, Damon. Uh, I usually say this when I read the Old Testament. If you don't know how to pronounce the names, read fast, read confident. Nobody will ever know, all right? And so, but what that verse is supposed to tell us is this. There is a battle happening, and the enemies of God are on their home turf. Because Judah is who? That's a tribe of Israel. I mean, that, that land belongs to Israel. So for a while, Israel was conquering land and, and, and working itself out and expanding. Now we see the enemies of God literally in their front yard. So we now know that Israel's losing ground. I mean, this is, if you're in ancient times, this is scary. You can't travel outside your pack. You can't go anywhere. There's enemies that are going to kill you. So this battle is taking place on God's front doorstep. It's right there. They're that close. And Saul and the men of Israel gathered. And they encamped in the valley of Allah. And they drew in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on one mountain on one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. And there came out on the camp of a Philistine, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He, um, that means about nine feet. So bigger than Shaquille O'Neal, bigger than Andre Giant. Keep going. It's about nine feet. It's not really uncommon. I mean, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we feel like it's mythology. It's not. I mean, there are people alive in the last 50 years that have been almost nine feet. You know, Google it. They're there. That's why Google's so amazing. Um, and there came out from the camp a Philistine named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That's just like his armor. And it weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's about 125 pounds. That's something, how much his shirt weighed, you know. That's, he's big. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. So he's got a lot of heavy armor on. He's strong enough to carry it. He's got a spear that I could not even handle, probably with two hands. That's how big it is. This guy's a massive warrior. I mean, he's, he's dangerous. He's evil. He hates God's people, and he's dressed to kill. Now, this guy stood, verse 8, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Why are you even here? It doesn't know because he's not asking it because he doesn't know. He's just making fun of them. Why'd you come here? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? 
I know who I am. Do you know who you guys are? You're insignificant. You're a little nation. We're already taking land from you. I mean, come on. Do you know what you're about to get into? You shouldn't even show up. You should just let us through. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come down and draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine or are you not servants of Saul? And then he says this, choose a man from among yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, before I read verse 11, I want to tell you that is a more frightful set of statements than we actually give it credit for sitting here today. Remember, when you read the Bible, you have to take your context out of it. You have a framework. You're from the West. You grew up in a certain home. You look a certain way. You eat a certain food. You talk a certain way. Sometimes it's hard for us to connect to these ancient people. So we really have to try to clear all that away and go, man, what would they have felt? What were they going through? Well, I can tell you what they were going through. They have a champion in front of them who seems completely like he can kill anyone he wants. The guy's making fun of Israel. They don't know what to do. And then he says, I'll make it easy on you guys. Just give me one person. I'll represent Philistine. I'll represent all that's evil in the world. And you give me one. Give me one from the king of Saul. Now, right away, the people are going, well, we have a guy. He's our king. He's Saul. He's a head and shoulders taller above everybody else. He carries a sword. He's pretty great. Where's he at? Well, we're about to see that Saul's afraid. He's nowhere to be found. And then the Philistine says, just so you know, when we fight, if I win, I get everything. You're going to be ours now. Now, if you go into the mind of those hearers that heard this, what they're thinking is, I remember a time when we were in slavery. 400 years, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. That's the book of Exodus, where Moses goes and frees God's people from slavery. And when you're in the slavery, all they did was make bricks build homes and castles, and they couldn't worship their God. They couldn't have a church service. They couldn't have connect groups. They couldn't have men's and women's events. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't worship their God. And in fact, Moses actually shows up and says, I'm freeing you so that you can worship God. That was part of the reason they needed to be freed. And so what do we have here now? We have a guy saying, I'm going to bring you back to that place. No more of this Yahweh God stuff. No more of this sacrifice stuff. You're going to be ours. You're going to worship our fake gods. You're going you're to be involved in our customs. No longer are you going to be God's people. That's, that was at stake in this battle. That's like someone walks in here and says, we're going to fight. Choose one from among the city gators. I have a few in mind. <laughs> Definitely wouldn't be me. I like hugging. And, and, and let's check it out, though. If we win, you guys can never see each other again. You have to disband. The doors are being closed. You don't meet for connect groups. You don't meet for church anymore. The friendships you just built are done. You will never see those people again. We're going to take you where we want to take you. You're ours. Now think of how important that battle is. Never would I ever see you ever again. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? And you got these people going, oh boy, he's big, he's strong, and he's going to, we're going to be his slaves? I don't know about this. Give me a man. Now, I'm thinking, whew, we got a man. He's our king. That's, what, that's his sole purpose is to defeat our enemies. But what does verse 11 say? When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, that did not work out the way we thought. What you expect to see is what? 
and the king put his armor on, like this dramatic scene in the movie, you know, where there's like, they make all the sounds of putting on the armor, you know, and they're ready to battle, and they're going to go beat the Philistines. That's not what happens. They're in the closet behind them, hoping Goliath just walks away. They're gone. What are we going to do? Goliath is this great picture of evil. A man who worshiped false gods. A man who's defying the creator God to his face. Who's spitting on our God. It's the person who mocks your savior to your face and they know they do it and they don't care. It's the people around you who use the Lord's name in vain because they know it gets a rise out of you. It's the people who look at you every day and say, you're such an idiot. You believe the Bible? That God doesn't exist. Goliath represents all of that is evil from the Philistines. He represents everything against the creator God. And there he is. And he says, give me a man. And Israel has no answer. What are they going to do? You see, they thought they had a man, a strong king. But turns out, he's just like everybody else. Susceptible to sin. He can fail. He can be afraid. He can be scared. He's not going to be the champion that fights for them. You know, it's not hard to see the comparison between this story and our lives. And when you read the Bible, you have to read it each kind of book in a different way. It's kind of like how you read sci-fi different from historical, like a, a history book. You know, you have to consume that information differently, right? You can't read everything like it's a fake thing. You know, that'd be, be really entertaining. That just wouldn't be true. You read, you know, if you follow an instruction booklet of how to put something together, you don't read that like it's just symbols. Like take the wrench and pick it up. I wonder by wrench if they mean hammer. You know, like, like that's not how you read those things. So when you read the Bible, you have to understand how you're going to consume this. Now, in the New Testament, it's really easy. It's do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. We just spent 30 weeks in Ephesians doing that. Do this and don't do this. But what do you do with a story? Let me help you handle the story. You can see parallels to your life. You can see how you would be in the story. You could see how this kind of takes place in our day today in the same way with just some different characters. And let me tell you, this has a huge comparison in our life, this facing off this battle, this in front of the enemy, this not having anybody to fight for us. And it's all because, here's, here's the comparison, death is scary. Like Goliath is the picture of death. He's going to throw that spear, he's going to swing that sword, and he's going to kill people. And in the same way, we are the exact same group of people, scared, frightful, because we know one day death is going to come. It's just true. And death is scary, not because it makes us feel bad, because we don't know when it's coming. And death is scary because it always bats 100,000 percent, not 100,000, 1,000 percent. Death never misses. One out of one person's what? Die. It never misses. It's always there. And it, it builds this fear within us. And as you look out into our culture, you can see that people do all sorts of things to act like they don't think death is coming. We get busy with all sorts of certain things. We get our mind busy so we don't have to think about it. If there's a funeral of somebody we know, heaven forbid we want to show up because we don't even want to see that. It's scary, and I'm with you. Funerals aren't fun. Death has taken place, and we grieve and we mourn. But we're also really afraid that one day this is going to come to an end. We'll do everything we can to keep our mind off of that topic. But you see, that's our greatest enemy. That's our Goliath. 
something that stands in front of us and says, this is so certain, you will not defeat me, you're done. That's what death is. And I would say, even if you feel like you're not afraid of actually dying, there are other things that you do in your life that just come out of the fear, knowing that death is coming. I would say everything, every sin that you are tempted by, or every fear finds its root in our fear of death as as a people. We hate it. We don't know what to do with it. So what are we going to do? Well, we need someone. We need a man, right? What did Israel need? They needed a man. They needed a champion. And we know that word champion literally means something like the one who stands in between. Isn't that cool? The one who stands in between. The one who stands in front of me. That's, that's the champion. They have one. We don't have one. So we need somebody to step up. We need somebody to defeat our great enemy. We need someone to lead us and someone who will conquer for us. And now we can kind of see how Christmas is this really joyful part of the year. Why? Because God has sent someone. God has sent a champion for us. So you can see kind of how you can make some comparisons. If we were to read the Bible in the way it is meant to be read, I want you to know that we are the scared people on the mountaintop. Now, the, story, the, 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 the stories of the Bible get taught in all sorts of different ways, in all sorts of different ways. Let me tell you the most faithful way to read David and Goliath and then consume it for your life. You are not David. God has not given us this story so that you would look at David and go, I need to be like him. I need to have faith, and I need to crush the Goliaths in my life, and I need, to, I need to conquer this, I need to conquer that. That's not who we are. Who we really are are the scared people on the mountain wondering who is going to go before us to conquer our enemy. Do you see the picture now? Sin, Satan, and death frightens us, and we can't defeat it on our own. And here's the other thing. God never asks you to. Not once does God ask you to go fight your most feared enemy alone. You're not David. The Bible's not about you. It's all about Jesus. We're the scared people on the mountain not knowing what to do. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Death is coming, and we can't beat it. That's where we're at in the story, all right? So now the camera breaks from that scene about uh, this nasty nine-footer. You know, he's spewing all this hate stuff. And and then it pans toward David, this unlikely shepherd boy. For some reason, he's going to enter into the picture and be the hero. 1 Samuel 17, verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. David was the son of an Ephrathite, that's a tribe, of Bethlehem. We know that place, something about Jesus, in Judah, and his name was Jesse. And Jesse had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, next to him Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul. So he's kind of around Saul, remember? He's the anointed king. Saul doesn't know he is. And another part of the Bible, he said he was kind of, he's the one who played music for Saul when Saul was feeling sick. So David's a musician. So he's serving the king and also secretly the king. But he's also what? He's also uh, went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's got these two jobs that he's doing. And for 40 days, the Philistine came out and took his stand, morning and evening. Not only was it one time the Philistine said that, 40 straight days, God's people stand in fear, crippled by it. They can't do anything. None of them have ever said, I'll go. We don't even get that. We don't get one brave soul going, all right, send me. I'll take him out. 
40 days. And Jesse said to David, his son, take to your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses, amen for cheese, to the commander of the household, of the, of, sorry, of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring a token from them. Now, David kind of takes center stage. And the first task he's given, not the sheep anymore, not tending to Saul, is to take some sandwiches to your brother. Take some food to them. And by the way, take this cheese. Cheese is holy. Cheese is good for you. Cheese is biblical. Amen. There's all the different kinds, you know, that you can enjoy. You can put it on a cracker. You can, all right. Um, take some sandwiches to your brothers. Take some cheese to the guy who commands them. Now Saul and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for the battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Sorry, verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, of the, champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up and out of the ranks of the Philistine and spoke the same words as before. Here he comes again. By the way, sin and evil have nothing new for you. It's the same message since the beginning. Don't trust God. You're going to die. Live in fear. That is basically Satan's sin and death's plan for your life, to keep you in fear, to make you scared of everything. And he has no new message, right? He's like, he's like the boxer has been hit in the head too many times. You ever hear a boxer talk in a press conference? <laughs> right, it's not good. So Goliath's like, hey, I'm going to kill you again. They're like, dude, we've heard this 40 times. Something new? Nope, same thing. Same, spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were much afraid. We still have Goliath. We still have the fear. But now we have David. He brought some sandwiches to his brothers. And all of a sudden, David takes center stage. We see him travel, take a simple, very simple command, and go into the story. He's making his way into the story. And now here's what I want to say as we kind of make some parallels of this. The story isn't about serving or taking the, doing the small tasks, but certainly I could stop here and say, never be too proud to even do the smallest job to serve somebody, even the smallest one. Now let me relate this to our church. We're a young, growing church, and we need a lot of people to step in and serve. We need a lot of people to help. We need a lot of people to give, because if not, we just crumble and we don't go anywhere. It's the way it is. We're a family. We've got to support one another. And let me tell you, I'm guilty of this as well. Remember, I have the mic and I get to preach. So what I'm about to say, there's no judgment. I struggle with the same thing. Never feel like a task is too small for you to do. Never too small. I mean, here we got the main guy of the story taking sandwiches to the battlefield. And so, you know, shoveling or sprinkling salt, sprinkling salt or making coffee, or parking cars, or putting a road sign out, or leading a connect group, or coming here in the middle of the week to help somebody, or putting in a ramp, <laughs> and a railing, and a handicapped door, or serving our 55 amazing children down there who need to hear the gospel, none of that is too small for you. I know often we think, I mean, John, do you see what kind of gifts I have? I mean, look at me, I'm Matt, look at me play the guitar. So amazing. I mean, that other stuff, don't you think that's kind of out of my league? This is not about him. I just saw him, so I used his name. But don't you think it's out of my league? I mean, I, I'm really built and suited for something different. 
I don't know. You see, if you're too big to serve, then you're too small to lead. That's kind of how it works. And so God is going to change the course of this nation's history and therefore bring us Jesus through what? A sandwich delivery. <laughs> the irony is pretty awesome. A sandwich delivery. Let's continue, verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Oh, fantastic for the daughter. She just gets put up as the prize. So all the nation is there, and they go, have you seen this guy? Man, he's out here shouting. He's making threats. And let me tell you, to anyone who's brave enough to go up, you're going to get the king's daughter, beautiful family. You're going to get a bunch of money, and you'll be free. You can live on your own plot of land. King, king, king can't touch you. All you got to do is kill that guy. That's it. So now they're so afraid, they're just putting up bounty posters everywhere. Will someone please help? Someone. Maybe money will entice you. We'll take anything at this point. We need a champion. They got one. We need one. David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, don't think of this as like a question because David didn't hear them speaking. David didn't say, hey, sorry, I was around the corner. Can you say what you just said again about who gets the spoils? That's not what he's saying. You know what he's saying? What are you guys talking about? This is an uncircumcised, false idol worshiper who is the personification of evil. And you're talking about a bounty? We should just kill him just because he defies God. What are you talking about? You're in the army. You don't need a reward. This is what you do. You fight for the Lord. You protect God's people. What's going to be given to you? Forget that. We don't need any of that. This guy is standing there defying the one true and living God to your face. And you're wondering how big the reward could get. Notice David says, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine? The reproach he's brought upon God? The curses he's hurling at God, this is offensive to the point where you should not care about a reward. You should not care at all. You should go and fight. Money, a wife, this is what you're worried about? Who is this man you're afraid of? Who is this man standing shouting these things? What's wrong with you? We see David walking around asking over and over and over again, basically, what are you guys doing? I mean, I just brought some sandwiches, but you guys are just sitting here doing nothing. You're afraid. And if we were to parallel that to us now, we could say, let's, let's think about this in our lives. So much of the time, I don't know how I, much of the time, the church often stands in fear about that evil or that injustice or the uncertainty of, of politics or whatever. Right? This army is the army of the true living God. They know he exists. They know he is real. He has fought for them time and time again. They have seen miracles before their eyes. And now they're afraid, like they actually don't know who they worship. Like they have no idea God's going to do it again. And as the church today, we can stand in fear about how the world is going. We can sit here and stand in fear because of the uncertainty, when in fact what we should be doing is saying, God, we trust you. We know you have this. We know that you're there. 
We know that you exist. And in fact, I'm going to put my hope and trust in you no matter the evil that I see around me, no matter how bad society gets, no matter how bad culture goes away. And often, instead of saying that, we're the church going, oh, we're afraid, oh, we need help. We don't need help. We serve the living God. He's on our side. (laughs) He's for us. That's what the Bible says. Not only that, he indwells us. We have his spirit within us to guide us and to lead us. Church, we ought not to be afraid as we journey through this world. Because there is no other God like our God. There is no one that can match him. And his church is the light in the dark and dying world. I've said this before. There is no plan B. Which means you, Christian, you're the plan. What do you mean on the plan? I didn't sign up for that. Yeah, yeah I know. You're, you're the plan to take the message to the world. God doesn't have another plan. He has called out his church. He has saved them, cleansed them, and commissioned them to go and take the gospel to the nations, to your community, to your homes, to your workplace. This is what he does. Now, I'm going to get to this later. Our God doesn't fight with sword and spear. That's apparent. Even Jesus says that. Put your swords away. We fight with words. We fight with a message. And the Bible says that the message that you hold should not cause you to run in fear. It should actually cause you to step into the middle of the mess because the word that you possess can defeat strongholds and can defeat evil and can defeat the enemy with just a word. Jesus Christ, the name that is above every other name. People can be saved. Sin can be fled. Sin can be destroyed. Sin can be conquered with that name. And so you see now, we're Israel. We're often too scared, even though we have this amazing God that we serve. We shouldn't be. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard what he had spoken to the men. Now the brothers are starting to hear. Our brother's here? He's supposed to bring us sandwiches and leave. Now he's walking around in between all the lines of the army. You can kind of see this little, like, annoying guy. He's kind of young, walking around going, Hey, did you? Are you waiting for the? What are you guys doing? Are you waiting for the reward? You can get the reward. You're, yeah, you're real big. You should go, right? He's, he's trying to get these people wondering, what are you doing? He's going over and over and over again. And one of his brothers says this, verse 28. I know you're down here just because you have an evil heart. You just want to see someone die, <laughs> right? You just want to see some action. I get it. You're a shepherd boy. You need some action, right? You, just, you don't come to the battlefield hoping that see people die just to get a little, you know, a little action in your life. You're sinning. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You have not come down, you, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what I have done now, was it not but a word? Am I not just speaking? Am I not just telling you the truth? Am I not telling you what you should have been telling yourselves for the last 40 days? That's all I'm doing. Don't put that on me. And he turned away from the, uh, and told another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as before. This is David now. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Verse 31, when the words of David, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. All right, so David's talking enough, making enough racket that the king hears him way in the back. Remember the big strong king that was supposed to save him? Yeah, he's in the back. And he sent for him, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go, and he will fight the Philistine. Now it's getting real. Not only is David just inquiring and wondering what's about to go down, David just put himself up as the champion. Don't worry anymore. I know it's been 40 days. I know it's been stressful. I know you're afraid. Check it out. I'll go. I'll go. My job is to serve the king. I'm in your service. I will go. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistines to fight with him, for you are but a youth, 
And he has been a man of war from his youth. David, you don't get this life, right? If it's today, they say, you're, you're not about this life. That's what he'd say. You're not about this life. This guy's been killing people for years. You cannot match him. Not going to work. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and I delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. That's real trash talk right there. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Well, I get it. I know I haven't been in a war, but let me tell you what I've done to protect my sheep. I've laid down my life for them. Sound familiar? I've gone and fought them. And let me tell you, even if even one of my sheep gets taken away, I go after it with a vengeance. I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. Now all of a sudden we have this different picture of David. He's not some insignificant character anymore. He's got some clout. He's got some street cred. And he's going up there saying, I want to be a part of this. And not only that, he said, this uncircumcised Philistine, he's putting this Philistine in his right place. So you have the armies of God, us, afraid of the evil in front of us. And what does David do? He finally speaks some truth. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's outside of the promise of God. He's an enemy of God. He has no power. He's but just a man. He bleeds like you and me. He puts his armor on like you and me. He does not have the favor of God. That's what he's saying. He's the same as a lion or a bear. We can take him. I can take him. David said, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Very significant, important for you to remember. David does not go based on his own merit and strength, does he? I mean, at first it kind of sounds like that. At first it sounds like David says, I will go because I'm qualified, because I can kill a bear and I can kill a lion. I mean, I'm trying to believe, but I also think they were miniature. I don't know how this went down. That's pretty hard to do, right? I mean, killing a bear and a lion, very few people can do that. See, he starts with, I've done it before, but how does he end? Very important for us as Christians today. The Lord, I just lost my spot. You guys thought I was being dramatic. I wasn't. Uh, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, what will deliver me from the Philistine? His complete trust is in the God that he serves. 100%. 100%. You can have the skills, you can have the talent, but let me tell you, church, God will deliver you from your enemy. You can't do it on your own, even if you're strong enough. Even if you're holy enough, you can't defeat sin. Even if your life is so organized, temptation doesn't even exist in your heart and your mind. doesn't matter. You're not qualified to go against death. You can't do it on your own. I'll go. No, you can't go. No, I want to go. Okay, you can go. What does, Paul, what does Saul say? Go, and the Lord be with you. At this point, Saul's just like, dude, whatever. We got no one. How about you? Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. This is a problem. You want to go? Okay, you got to look like me. You got to dress like me. I'm a king like the other nations. You got to wear this armor. You got to take this sword. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. That's not what he says. David strapped the sword over his armor. He tried to go in vain. He tried to go, but he didn't test the armor. It doesn't fit. It's too big. You know, you put a bike helmet on a little kid, his head looks like a pea. You know what I mean? Like that's what's going on. It's flopping around. It's good for nothing. The kid that wears a bike helmet like that and falls off a bike, he's going to get hurt. That's what David's position is. And it's all. This doesn't work. It's not my stuff. Verse 40. 
I, uh, 39 still. I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. So David put them off, verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. Why five? I don't know. Three people asked me after the first service. Ask me later. I don't think it's significant at all. I think if we make it significant, it's probably an issue. If that's offensive, I apologize. We can dialogue. Then he took his five, I mean, the story's not about the five stones, all right? So then he took his staff, which would have been a shepherd's tool, and chose five smooth stones, and he put them in a shepherd's pouch. So he's going with what he knows. He's going with what he has. He's going to give God all that he has, all that he knows. He's going to go and fight. And he approached the Philistine. Let's get some more trash talk here. And the Philistine moved forward, came near David with a shield bearer. Remember the guy carrying the door-sized shield? And he said to him, and when the Philistine looked down and saw David, he disdained him. He looked down upon him. He was like, really? Come on, you're nothing. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. You're too pretty to be a warrior. You should be doing something else. You don't belong out here with us. I'm full of scars. You got nothing on your body. And the Philistine said to David, am I not a dog that you come at with me with sticks? Do you guys think you could just shoo me away? Do you feel like this little twig? That's what he's saying. You think this twig is going to hurt me? It's not going to work. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at with me with sticks? And then he said, oh, he cursed David by his gods, lowercase g, which is ironic because it meant nothing because they're fake. Huh, joke's on you. Verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. You got all your stuff. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Powerful statement. You got everything that makes a good warrior. I see it. I recognize it, and it looks like you could do some damage. Congratulations. Yay for you. I don't have any of that. I got some five smooth stones that mean nothing. And I got a staff. But who else do I have? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. A name that is above every other name. A name that can defeat evil every time we say it. A name that is more powerful than any other name. When the Bible says that the name of Jesus Christ is more powerful than any other name, it really, truly means it. God in the flesh. I come at you, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. I've seen this God before. I'm David. I've grown up. I've seen the armies of God be successful. I know God was at hand. I know we could never win. I mean, we're scared right now. There's no way we won those battles in the past without him. Take what you have, Goliath. I come at you with a name. And in his power, I'm going to defeat you. And you have to ask yourself this question. What makes this guy so confident? I mean, if it were me, if I killed a lion, I'd be telling everybody all the time. <laughs> It'd be on my Christmas cards. <laughs> had a great year, killed a lion, <laughs> right? And then 2024, had a great year, killed a lion five years ago. Like you could never get stopped. I and mean, if you did something that cool, I would need that street cred. I need that, right? Why is he so confident? It's not in that. If you were to ask David, he would have said, I'm just doing my job. What makes him confident? What makes an everyday shepherd boy Go before a champion of evil. Verse 46. This day, this is David. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. <laughs> all right. Now you kind of get to the point where you're like, all right, David, take it easy. <laughs> we just need you to knock him down. <laughs> all the other people will rush in. Just knock him down. 
right? I think the people were like, well, he's just the first wave. If David can distract him, you know, maybe run around him really quick, then we can go in and fight him. No, David's really on it here. But what does he lead with? I've killed a bear. I've killed a lion. I'm pretty dangerous, and you are underestimating me. Let me tell you, I will never give up. I got willpower. I can pull myself up from my own bootstraps. I'm super tough. He doesn't say that. Friends, God doesn't ask you to act like that either. He never asks you to act like that. He actually wants you to be poor in spirit, which is what Jesus' first sermon says. He wants you to be humble. He wants you to know you cannot do it. You cannot defeat temptation. You cannot defeat sin. You will need the presence of the living God in your life and the community that surrounds you. You will never make it out alive in this life if you think you can do it on your own. Amen? It's not going to work. And all of us have tried it. Everyone in here has tried it. It always fails. This day, he's going to deliver you. Not only am I going to strike you down, I'm going to cut your head off. And I will give the dead bodies of the people behind you to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Now, the next statement is the reason I believe this story even exists. When you read historical narrative, you've got to wonder, why this story? I mean, certainly there's a bunch of stuff that happened. Why this one? Two reasons this story is in your Bible for us to know today. Number one, this story is about God choosing David because God chooses it all. Amen? God does it all. David didn't ask for it. And I love it because David's this unassuming king, kind of like the baby born on the backside of a desert who's going to grow up and be God. You see how that works? David's a shepherd. Jesus is a shepherd. All that kind of good stuff. That certainly is there. But here's the other reason why this battle happens. This verse right here. I'm going to give your body to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the fields. Why? That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. That's the reason this battle goes down. So that the Israelites will remember who they are? Sure, but not necessarily. So the Philistines would know that there's a God who lives here? Eh, yeah, that'd be cool too. But who should know that there's a God in Israel? All the earth. We stand here some 3,500 years later after this happened, and what do we know today? There is a God who saves. Amen? There is a God in Israel. Those are his people, and through him, through them, he sent a Savior. That's the reason this story exists, is to show that there is a God in Israel, and guess what? That God's about to prove his power right now in front of everybody. Because I'm a little guy, and I'm handsome, but I'm wicked fast, and I got a sling. And the Lord is going to send me, and I'm going to cut your head off. I think we leave that out downstairs, but just correct my math on that later. I don't think we're like, yeah, and David cut his head off. Now, that's the reason the story is here. So we, so the earth would know that there is a God in Israel, not a lowercase g God who's fake, who doesn't, who doesn't uh, make good on his promises, but a God who is real, who is living, who can really impact your life. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Here's the second half. I'm doing this, God's doing this, so he can prove himself to the world. And then second, that all of us here involved would know that I did not kill this guy with a weapon made with human hands. I did not kill this guy with a spear. I was not like everybody else, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. Every ounce of evil in this world will never be defeated with a gun or a knife or a bomb or a tank. The gospel does not conquer by might. In fact, if some nation wants to say, we're so powerful, we're going to take you over and give you the Bible, we'll win. It will never work. The gospel conquers, but with a word, with a message, 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's far more powerful than any knife or any sword or any gun. Amen? That's not how the gospel conquers. Ever will the gospel conquer by might. It's not going to work. When the Philistine arose and came, drew to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle. He lined up with the Philistine, verse 49. And David put his hand into his bag, took out the stone, slung it. This is where you teach the kids the song. And the sling went round and round, and the sling went round and round. And they love that part because they can run around wild downstairs. You know, they're sleeping in their slings. All right, if you didn't enjoy that later, you guys can do it. And David put his hand in his bag, took the stone out of his sling, and he struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Again, what we're about to read. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. What is the story about? The battle scene that we make much of lasted two verses. What's the story about? Over and over again. God did it. He didn't even have a sword in his hand. Oh, by the way, he didn't even have a sword in his hand. Oh, by the way, the Lord sent him and he didn't have a sword in his hand. What is that going to tell us? There is a God who does exactly what he said he will do. He makes good on his promises. And he will get this done. He will be the champion. He will save his people. He will intervene. I don't need a king like the other nations. I don't need a sword. I don't need a shield. I will send my champion. And although all of you think this guy's worth nothing and he can't be a champion, let me tell you, he's going to defeat Satan's sin and death with a word. We just read Matthew chapter 1. What did we read? That they would call him Jesus and why? Because Jesus means he will save their people from their sins. And what does Jesus grow up to do? Miracles and teaching like nobody has ever heard. And they kill him for it because they're messing up their religion. And everyone, when they think it's all lost, when they're on the mountaintop afraid because their savior was killed and we thought he was the man, he thought he was the champion, what happens three days later? God vindicates him. He proves that he is the very person he was by raising him from the dead. So can death, our greatest enemy, be conquered? Yes, it can. By who? Not by you and me. By heaven's champion. Amen? Heaven's champion. This is Christmas. This is why Christmas is so important to us. This is why I want to be important to you. And I do understand. Yeah. I do understand I'm just going to do something different. I do understand that Christmas is hard for a lot of us because there's people who have passed on. There are people we're not going to see. There's relationships that are strained. We have bad experiences. I get all of that. But you see, what's so powerful even in your story is that there is still a God in Israel who exists, even if your story isn't the way you thought it was going to go. And he still conquered death. And he still defeated your greatest enemy. So even when we're sorrowful or lamenting, we still have the hope that we will also, like him, be raised from the dead. Amen? That death will never conquer us again. In fact, it'll be like it was in the beginning. Because the reason you hate death isn't because it takes away your loved ones. That's part of it. The reason we hate death is because that's not how it's supposed to be. You ever had somebody who was a non-Christian and they say, I don't believe in your Bible. It's like, it's fairy tales, right? There's this spirit thing floating around. There's this God who speaks. There's a donkey in there who talks, different sermon. All this stuff, I don't believe it. 
And then at the same time, they get mad at death. And when one close person in their family dies, what does it do? It crumbles, it crushes them. I've seen people, non-Christians and Christians alike, we all struggle, mourn the death of someone where it has literally altered the last 30 years of their life. And I feel them. It's hard. If you have someone die close, that die that's close to you, you understand that weight and that impact. But with the same breath, you can look at them in the eyes and say, if there is not a God and death is just a part of normal processes and we're just a bunch of bag of bones waiting to disintegrate, why are you so affected by it? And in that statement right there, you say, let me tell you why. You should be affected by it. You should mourn because this is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is called the final enemy because it is. Because it gets the last word. But let me tell you who heaven sent to come into our world to look it straight in the eye and with the power of the living God defeat it. Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is so important. That's why on Christmas I tell you to throw a bigger party. Give more gifts. If you don't have any money, just wrap up stuff from your garage. Get... Eat the best kind of food. There's some of you actually want some stuff from your garage. Eat the best kind of food. Hang out with more family and friends. Be more joyful. Look at more lights. Why? Because this is the time of year we can actually celebrate that somebody went against our enemy and defeated him. There was only one. And this is the time we get to celebrate. Just like David, Jesus spoke the truth when nobody else would. Just like David, Jesus put himself in between the people and certain death when nobody else could. Just like David, Jesus fought with the word. And although he died on a cross, just like David, Jesus won when he was raised from the dead. Just like Jesus, uh, just like David, Jesus saved his people from their sins and their death and the conquering of evil. And just like David, Jesus gave all the God. All, uh, God gave God all the glory for all of it. It's an amazing story that should prepare our hearts for Jesus. That 1,100 years before Christ even shows up, this is taking place. It's preparing God's people to see that I'm in charge. I'm still going to do what I said I would do. Watch me do it. It's an amazing story to remember. I'm going to end with Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 again, a few verses. But after he had considered this, this is Joseph going, um, my fiance's pregnant. I think something happened, so I'm going to think I'm going to get out of this relationship. It's basically what that says. But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, I love that. Did you know Mary and Joseph are both descendants of David? That's a totally different sermon, but David is in the family line of Jesus. Because David is told, after you will come someone whose kingdom will never end. I know you're a king, David, but eventually someone's going to come and their kingdom's never going to end. It's going to be an everlasting kingdom. Who, would that, who is that? It's Jesus. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived as her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because, why are you going to call him that? Because he will save his people from their sins. Heaven has sent its champion to stand in between you and your greatest enemy. And so today, I want to ask you to do two things. Number one, just glory in that. Just let that get you excited about Christmas. Or number two, if you have yet to become a Christian, you need to receive Christ today. You need to humble yourself before the champion. Stop acting like you can do it yourself because you've already tried and you failed, and I know how it feels to fail. 
Stop acting as if you can make this life, you can conquer this life alone, the sins that encroach on you, the death that's coming. You can't defeat it on your own. What I want you to do today is receive Christ. And I want you to pray, and I want you to say, God, save me. I heard your message. I heard your gospel. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I believe in who Jesus is. I believe in what the Bible says is true. I know that I'm a sinner and I can't do it, and I want salvation. That is possible for you today. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. That is an option, and that's always an invite at this church.